Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Jeff Yosh, feel like we're getting the boys back together. Thanks for coming on the pod. CJ, so good to see you. So good to talk to you. Uh, excited to be here today. So Jeff, you have an exceptional background. You have a way of picking winners. And so you were the CMO at Sneak, at Elastic. You also worked at Zora and Salesforce. So quite a list of hitters there. But I just wanted to qualify real quick because this podcast, a lot of CFOs, strategy and ops people listen. And you know, you're a CMO, but you have kind of a unique background, right? What was your first job actually out of school? So uh, going back to 1995, uh, my first job out of college uh, was working for uh, Arthur Anderson and Company. So uh, for those of you who don't know who Arthur Anderson Company was, it was at the time the largest uh, a public accounting firm in the world, uh, something like 100,000 employees. Uh, and I took that job out of college because honestly, it was the best job possible for me to go take. As an auditor, I was going into publicly traded companies. I was ticking and tying balance sheets. I was running different models to, to look for materiality uh, and to, to really make sure that we could ensure that you know, the financial statements uh, uh, were, were solid. Uh, but, but really quickly, uh, I, uh, I decided to move after about uh, two and a half years of, of doing uh, accounting, moved into the management consulting division uh, at Arthur Anderson, which eventually became uh, what is known today uh, as uh, as Accenture. Nice, nice. So uh, you're a better man than me because you did pass the CPA exam. I'm a CFO. I did not do that. But you've you've now been in the startup world for decades now. Um, you know, you were there during the dot com bubble. You were there during Salesforce's early days. I wanted to ask you, as a marketing professional and a CMO. How does that role of a CMO change as, you know, the, the life cycle of a company changes? I, I'd imagine that a CMO's relationship to a CFO is probably pretty different at the early stage versus later on. Yes, the, the role of, of a CMO or a VP of marketing um, is very ver is varied. So um, let's talk about the early stages of a company. You're in sure. company formation. Uh, you're raising uh, a Series A or Series B. Uh, that's usually when kind of your first kind of head of marketing, VP of marketing comes on board. Uh, really, the role of, of the head of marketing is to, to really uh, work very closely with the CFO to, to drive messaging. Uh, and the importance of messaging there is for a couple of reasons. One is, is you're trying to figure out what your market is, what your category is. Uh, but it's also for an investment thesis because likely you're trying to build a business so that you go raise more money at a certain point in time once you hit certain milestones uh, and you need to go drive customer acquisition. So in order to drive customer acquisition, you need to have a solid foundation around messaging about who you are, what your products do, and then how you help customers solve pain points. So usually your CFO is pretty active in, in actively engaged in, in really building messaging in that early phase. And I'm sure you're doing that right now with your startup. Uh, but then quickly, uh, it then be, turns into like, okay, how do you build a marketing plan? And then how do you yeah. even budget? And then how do you do experimentation? Because 
really, you don't really know what works in those early phases. So it's all about rapid experimentation and really that alignment between your head of marketing and your CFO around the fact that we are going to do lots of experimentation. We don't know it's going to work, but when we find something that works, we're going to double down on it. And before long, if something is not working, we're going to kill it pretty fast. So um, that that's my experience in the early phases. As you mature from, say, that early phase to, say, maybe you know, thirty to fifty million dollars in revenue, and you're now you're anchoring on how do we quadruple growth or triple growth and get to to a hundred mil. Uh, really, the the role of the CMO uh, starts to to become much broader because now the the GTM and the entire function of the company uh, starts to orientate around. Okay, how do you uh, drive pipeline? to ensure that there's enough coverage uh, so that we can continue to grow our sales teams. Uh, segmentation also becomes important because you may start to have different segments of businesses that you sell to. So you might start off in kind of SMB and mid-market, and then you might start to, to sell into the enterprise. So understanding kind of how to get into the enterprise becomes a critical function for the CMO and the CFO to be aligned on. Uh, and then potentially you may start to go international. So uh, yeah. When you go international, you have to hire people out of the core base of, say, the U.S. market or in, in EMEA. And now you're starting to, to run programs that are, are fairly broad. So what does that international kind of makeup look like in terms of, you know, campaigns, programs, spend? How do you leverage partners out into those regions? Uh, and then most importantly, I think this is where you really start to look at different type of numbers such as your CAC ratio as well as NER because you, you have to truly understand, you know, how much does it, it cost to acquire a customer? And that's going to differ potentially by segment as well as by by geo. And then you want to make sure that your NER is, is really sticky. Uh, in the old days, it was, you know, above 130 was considered the, the gold standard. Uh, these days, it's probably around kind of above kind of 100 to, to 110. Uh, but but that is really important because your your first base of customers are, are who hopefully uh, you leverage to expand with and drive more revenue, uh, but also to help you drive more pipeline because the more customers you can acquire, the more pipeline they're going to be able to influence because they're going to refer business uh, through word of mouth. Jeff, uh, you are one of the best storytellers around a brand I've ever met just from working with you. How how does storytelling come into play in those early days? And what's the CMO's role in kind of helping a CFO tell a story with numbers? So I, I think uh, storytelling is, is something that uh, really helps define a company and helps define a company as being a, a category winner, but also a, a company that, that really kind of defines uh, a really a space over multi kind of generational kind of years. So this multi-generational company uh, requires a company to really have uh, amazing messaging and storytelling. Uh, I think at the pinnacle of, of storytelling comes down to the problem you're trying to solve, the users you're, you're trying to go after, uh, and, and really how do you make sure that you differentiate yourselves but how do you also do that in a way that you're not using a bunch of buzzwords, that you're not using a bunch of phrases coined by other analysts? Uh, it really has to come from the heart of the company. And that oftentimes involves uh, the CMO and the marketing team being pretty tightly aligned with, 
the founders of the companies, uh, with the the product and engineering teams, as well as being able to uh, be close to, to the customer and understand uh, really the perspective of where the customer kind of sees uh, your company helping them, you know, transcend problems that they haven't yet been able to solve with other type of, of, of software companies that they've tried to use before. Uh, so I do think that that messaging uh, really helps companies actually differentiate, break out of the pack. Uh, and it's something that needs to, to, to be kind of, you need to have the blocking and tackling of it, but it needs to be something that can hold over, over, over many periods of years. So in the early days, your, your messaging might be orientated around uh, really kind of solving a single problem. As you evolve, it's going to be across multiple use cases and maybe multiple products. And then long term, it, it, it might get to a point where uh, it's really a market message and you're leading the market. But developer security, when, when, when I heard how people explained what Sneak did around, we empower developers uh, to have security at their fingertips and to be able to, to automate it right in their workflows, right in their SLDC. Uh, it became fairly apparent to me that the cloud native application security wasn't something that either reps were saying, it wasn't something that I heard from customers. Uh, and it it also uh, what wasn't something that was going to just roll off the, your tongue. So fortunately, uh, working collectively across the, the, the collective team, uh, we were able to shift that. Now, as the company shifts, the, the key as a company gets into the enterprises, how do you get enterprises to adopt that message? How do you get them to, to really think and breathe, developer security? I think, Jeff, a lot of this goes back to the category that you define. And one of my favorite newsletters, and there are some books on it too, uh, Chris Lockhead, he writes Category Pirates, and he talks about how the category leader uh, gets about 75% of the returns and then whoever's left and tries to, you know, be an also ran gets like 25% of the returns and they'll have to fight for it. When you were at Salesforce or Zora or um, Elastic, can you just give an example of like what you called your category at any of those? What did you, what was, what was the slogan for the category? Yeah. So at, uh, let's, let's talk about Zora. Zora, um, is a subscription billing and management platform. Uh, the category uh, that we created uh, is called the subscription economy. Um, and and what what we we saw was that there was this massive shift in that companies were moving from kind of one-time product sales to recurring revenue, and that an entirely new platform needed to be envisioned in order to automate pricing and packaging, automate billing, automate revenue recognition, uh, to be able to give companies the agility to shift to this new model, which is subscriptions. Uh, so we could have called ourselves a billing company. We could have called ourselves a recurring revenue you know, platform, but we decided to, to, to really coin the term subscription economy, uh, which was a very hard thing to do because it wasn't like we were going in and replacing existing budget and existing tools. This was a net new thing. So uh, I think that was one of the biggest challenges that, that Zora had was it did take a long time for that term to adopt itself. But still today, that is largely what 
you know, Zora says is Zora says that they are powering the subscription economy. And nobody would disagree that the way that we consume software today, the way that you as a business buy software is on a recurring basis, not some sort of one-time perpetual sale. I find that really fascinating from the financial storytelling side of things. And I know that you helped me when we were working together, position something as a category and then tell the stories around that. But if you tried to just hijack what somebody else was calling their space, it didn't really work. And like you had identified before, when you'd use all these buzzwords, people really sniff that out and uh, it, it doesn't really take. So Jeff, something else I wanted to dig into that you, you mentioned before is that when you work with a CFO, um, you know, part of the relationship is running experiments and seeing what works and then shutting down what doesn't work. Can you, can you say more about that experimentation process? Yeah. So, so when, when it comes to uh, e experimentation, um, uh, this comes down to, to, at the end of the day, ROI. So yeah, you need to be able to measure the campaigns and programs that you do so that whether it's at the end of every month or at the end of every quarter uh, or uh, at the end of the year, you can actually look holistically across the board to say, based on the big bucket of categories and the subcategories of programs and spend, here is the calculated ROI uh, that we are returning. And you can measure ROI based on, on pipeline, but it can also be based on cost per lead. Uh, and, and, and the experimentation would be, hey, C Mr. C Mr. or Mrs. CFO, we're going to run some experiments in an area that we may not know what the return is, but we're going to measure it. Uh, and we're going to be able to quantify whether this was successful or not successful. And there's probably a duration of time that's required in order for you to see whether that is successful. Um, but experimentation should be based on, on data and it should be something that there is clear transparency between the CMO and the CFO uh, as well as the executive team around, hey, we are going to go enter into a new market. In order to enter a new market, we got to run some experiments uh, and we're going to test things out. We're going to start small and if it works, then we're going to double down. So that that is my experience with kind of experimentation. Uh, you want to encourage your teams to always experiment, but the role of the CMO is to be transparent with the finance team and the CFO as to, hey, here's this allocation of money that we're managing our budget and our quarter to. Yeah. And within the budget, there is known spend, known spend that you just have to run a mill every single day, every single week, we got to spend it. Uh, and then there are our buckets of spend, which is, is based on, on experimentation. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I love how you outline that there's like this spend engine that's always underlying it for like the core stuff you got to do. And then there are these pockets that are kind of bets for experimentation. Now, what I want to ask you, and I bet a lot of listeners are thinking this, I'm a finance person, Jeff. Some of these experiments aren't working, right? How do I come back to you and communicate that message in a way that you'll be receptive to it without, without me calling your baby ugly? Well, so I think... It really comes down to data, right? So this is where the, the partnership between finance and marketing is, is absolutely critical. So I have always loved the business partner relationship and my finance partner uh, that has, has really been kind of my advocate within finance, but also the person who uh, really allows for this kind of separation of church and state. So really the role of that finance business partner is to, to really ensure that as we, we look at everything from budget and spend analysis, campaign performance, 
you know, headcount, uh, expenses even, that we're, we're able to, to really do this in a data-driven way and to be able to utilize that data in order to have the right level of conversation, uh, uh, you know, at the CFO level. In some cases, I think it's perfectly fine for my finance partner to be able to go to the CFO and in their regular meetings, uh, communicate kind of the performance of campaigns. I don't need to be visible in every single one of those yeah. meetings because as long as I'm aligned with that person ongoing, uh, there should not be this issue of like the CFO being surprised or the CMO being surprised. So it really comes to this, this really good tight partnership between uh, these organizations. And just like in the HR team where you have an HR business partner as the company scales, uh, that finance business partner is absolutely critical to, to, uh, to the marketing organization. I love how you said too that it's a constant conversation around metrics because I'm never going to have to come to you and say, Jeff, what the hell is going on here? Because we're always talking about it and reviewing it on a constant basis. It's like we're making that decision together of was this a good bet? Was that a great bet? Was this a bad bet? It's not like this big surprise that came out of nowhere. That, that's right. Absolutely right. There should not be any surprises. I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite topics here. And I know that you like this topic too, being a CMO. So what do you think is the one metric that a CMO should own? Ooh, the one metric. So I think at the, uh, the top level, a CMO needs to own two things. They need to own brand and they need to own demand. So the metrics that kind of bring both of those together is, is really pipeline. Uh, and when I think about, about pipeline, it's really total pipeline. It shouldn't be uh, this discussion around, oh, well, the CMO only owns marketing source pipeline or inbound pipeline. A CMO needs to own total pipeline. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is that when you look across the board around kind of building a business, your total pipeline uh, really drives the future predictability of the company. So if you're able to look kind of holistically at total pipeline, the components of that might be inbound and outbound, maybe partner or channel, uh, but you should be able to drill down into that by segment, by geo, by vertical, uh, and then you should be able to then sub-drill down into program or campaign type. Uh, and, and the nice thing about looking at total pipeline, uh, not every week and every month and every quarter is equal. We all know this, that there are, are variances in which sometimes there might be a sales team that has a, a kick-ass week here yeah. and another team that has another kick-ass week, or there might be some seasonality of which one team is on, on vacation because there's a holiday in, say, uh, in, in the UK and the people are off for, for this period of, you know, two or three days. Uh, so when you look at kind of, kind of total pipeline, you're kind of able to see, uh, the progression of pipeline, but you're also able to see the gaps and then you're able to make decisions around, you know, how do you potentially reallocate, um, dollars or how do you, um, go and narrow focus on a problem area, uh, where maybe there's a problem area in a certain segment. Maybe it's the SMB segment, say, in APJ, or maybe there is uh, a problem with uh, the enterprise and the enterprise pipeline is not um, growing and it's not being sticky enough. Uh, you can also look at that in terms of other ways around maybe the enterprise pipeline uh, is getting stuck and maybe deals mm -hmm. are, are either being closed or lost or being pushed out. And when you dig into some of those reasons, is it because, A, maybe we're missing enterprise features that customers aren't going to make a bet yet until that those features are inside the product? 
Uh, or another thing that I've seen is pretty common is uh, enterprise deals being lost because they already have long-term contracts with incumbent vendors of which they're not going to move off of a, you know, a multi-million dollar spend until that contract is up. So those, those deals are going to take some time to, to mature. So being transparent and clear around the reasons why you know, pipeline is going up and down and measuring that, I think, is, is really uh, why I think that if you just look at pipeline, the CMO should own pipeline, your CRO, uh, really owns the, the the ARR number and the long-term planning. On how do we, you know, you know, achieve the the the, the number, which is the growth plan uh, for the month, the quarter, the year? But the CMO and the the CRO should be in lockstep around working together to to build the revenue plan for the company. Yeah, what do they say? EOP. Everybody owns pipeline, right? Absolutely. I know marketing should, like you said, own all of pipeline, and it should be kind of a team effort. But what what rough percent would you say should come directly from marketing? So I think it depends on the phase of the company. So in the early phase of the company, so if you're in, in, a, in a startup, maybe series A, series B, you're probably going to have uh, probably close to 80 to 90% of that pipeline being generated by marketing. Um, uh, as the company starts to mature uh, and and get kind of more visible, uh, sales reps should be able to go outbound and to, to generate and source some of their own deals. You'll also have situations where sales reps are coming from companies where they know the buyer. So they should be able to reach back into the, those buyer pools and uh, build their own pipeline. And, and that's why, you know, seasoned sales reps get paid, uh, um, you know, pretty nicely um, if they're able to, 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 to continue to, to be successful, you know, selling into the enterprise. Uh, so I think it varies on stage um, and it also varies on, on type of company. So if you're a developer-led, community-led, open source, you're probably going to see much more coming through kind of that open source funnel or uh, a product-led growth funnel. Uh, and, and over time, you might see that shift a little bit as you start to build into the enterprise. Uh, but but in general, you know, I've seen it as as high as, you know, 80 to 90 percent coming from marketing that's source. So you also have to define how you measure pipelines. So are you measuring on first touch? Are you measuring on on last touch? Are you doing some sort of multi touch kind of attribution model? But if you just take it on like first touch, a lot of that pipeline for certain type of companies is going to be marketing source. Uh, and then as you see a company evolve. Uh, and you start to add sales teams, you're probably going to see that shift move from like 80 to 90 down to, to 40 to 60 percent uh, uh, coming from, from from marketing. But if you measure it holistically across the board, marketing's job is to also support outbound. So if a sales team is going to go do an outbound campaign, marketing should be in lockstep with them. What is the message? What is the campaign? What are the assets? How do we best support you and making sure that those conversations are easy and fluid, that there's a call to action, uh, that we can help you actually look at the data. And maybe it's an ABM campaign specifically for financial services and for these 10 banks. Uh, and, and how can we uh, enrich your data so that you can then do uh, more effective outbound? So that might be an influence measure. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't I don't really care. Uh, kind of who gets credit for that is 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 it should really be about how do we build total pipeline for the company. I might have to call this podcast a pipeline masterclass because that was that was a definition of of giving the man the ball and letting him cook, Jeff. That was that was incredible. Thank you. <laughs> I like to cook. 
Yeah. What I wanted to point out in some of the nuggets that you just gave us is that from the outside, a lot of people just assume that all pipeline is generated by marketing. But as a company matures, like you were saying, you're paying sales reps to generate some of their own. I feel like that's not as well known. The same thing with like, that's why you hire channel reps, because they can help drum up pipeline. It's not all on the backs of the marketing team, which I feel like is a common misconception. It totally is. And this is where I love kind of uh, the, this one team concept is, is marketing needs to be together with with sales, with BD. Uh, we are um, a partner to, to help drive the business. Um, we have a, an equal seat at the table to, to really make sure that we're doing the right things, allocating the right dollars. Um, but but it really um, is, is not about kind of one team kind of being the hero and playing hero ball. Uh, it really is about winning and losing as a team, because if a team misses the number or if the company misses the number, uh, you know, uh, it's not sh- sh- I've never felt that it's just, oh, the sales team's fault that we lost the number. It's like, OK, what could have we done better to help support and build pipeline or what do we need to now do in the f- to, to influence things in the future? Uh, and the same thing goes is, is when you when you when you win and when you you know, have a phenomenal quarter. I love that it's not just a celebration of just sales, but it's the people that are behind the scenes in pricing, the people behind the scenes in, in sales enablement that help this this happen. It's it's the, the office of the CFO and contracts and procurement, as well as the marketing teams, the sales engineering teams, maybe even the support teams and product and engineering teams. It's really a, an all hands on deck when it comes to kind of winning and losing. Yeah. And something that me and you have done in the trenches before, and people always ask me, like, what's one of the most valuable models you can learn to help out a CMO or a CRO? And I always like to say helping a a sales leader build out their capacity model and then helping a marketing leader build out their pipeline model. So you as a CMO, you like you said, you have different segments, SMB, mid-market, enterprise. How do you think about generating pipeline for each quarter, is there a lag time that you have to associate and you have to think, you know, really far forward, say, for the enterprise? Yeah. So I think for the enterprise, it's like 90 plus or 90 to 120. It depends on your average deal size uh, and it depends upon what verticals you're selling into and are there compliance and other regulatory things that you have to go through in order to close that deal. Uh, really, you, you then have your mid market, which, you know, can be kind of anywhere from call it 60 to, to 90 days. Uh, and then your SMB uh, is is something that you know hopefully is is less than thirty days, but it's probably more realistic. That's probably less than, than, than sixty days. I, I imagine companies that that have uh, that are SMB companies, they have a lot going on, and procuring software may not be something that is is top of mind. Of course, if it's mission critical and they absolutely need it, then it should happen pretty fast. Uh, but a lot of times in the SMB space, when you live in that pit of like the the SMB reps. <laughs> It's really about kind of herding cats and dogs because everybody in SMB in the business that they're trying to sell to have limited resources. Uh, there's not a lot of people. There might not even be a CFO there. There might not even be someone to kind of review contracts on their side. So it, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, and then, of course, in the enterprise, it's even harder work because now you have different layers of decisioning and influence that you have to go through. So, so I do believe that when you kind of build these models, you do have to look at how long does it take for a deal to kind of mature and close. And I also think that you also need to, to really uh, kind of work backwards and you need to have kind of this coverage uh, around kind of, you need to build overage or overcapacity into the model where that 
if you're a public company, you have a, a street plan that, that you need to get to. Then you have a board plan. Then you have a sales plan. And then you have the number for, for the, the, the reps at the geo level. Uh, so you need to build enough capacity. So marketing needs to fill enough capacity in order to meet at least the board plan. But hopefully there, there's over on top of that to, to meet even the street plan. Producer Nancy, we got to clip that with all the different plans there because that was amazing. I, thanks for breaking that down and uh, the bit on over assignment. Jeff, a point of friction commonly between CFOs and CMOs is actually when this, the marketing team doesn't spend their program budget. So I'll give you an example like, you know, engineering comes in over budget. I'm a little bit pissed. Uh, marketing comes in over budget. I'm not as pissed because it's generating pipeline. Marketing comes in way under budget. I'm talking they only spent 75%. I'm like, hey, are we going to have enough demand here? How, how as a marketing leader have you worked with CFOs in the past? Have, have you had to go through that where you feel like I'm actually not spending enough, which is kind of counterintuitive to think? Yeah, I, I've not had the issue of actually not spending enough. Um, You're good at spending? I'm good at spending, uh, or actually my teams are good at spending. I'm, I'm good at approving. <laughs> so I think when it comes to not spending enough, um, you have to understand the reason why, because, because in order to spend money in marketing, you're, you're doing a 12 month plan and then you're, you're, you're taking that dollar down into like, okay, uh, nine months and six months and three months. So you have your run rate spend, which is most of your digital marketing spend, your use of contractors and consultants, your run a mill of running the systems. Uh, you're going to have kind of your spend there that you just have your known spend. Uh, yeah. When you come under, it's usually not on the known. It's usually like there's some some committed spend that you were going to do some big campaign, big program, big event, uh, and something changed. So you have yeah. to understand what changed and why did it change? And if it did change, um, what is the impact of not spending that money? Meaning that is that going to have a lagging effect on pipeline and the ARR plan? Uh, and if so, it, it needs to be, be level set back at the exec team around, hey, we allocated a certain amount of dollars to go after, say, a vertical like financial services. We decided that maybe for whatever reasons, we're not ready as a company. Um, uh, we, we don't think that the market is ready and maybe the environment has changed. So we have decided to defer that spend to something later. Now, as a private company, you can do that and you kind of move dollars around. Uh, but as you become a public company, uh, I've learned that that once you, you have dollars allocated, uh, you, you better spend that money. <laughs> and uh, and hopefully, yeah. oftentimes, you might actually have excess money to spend in in, in maybe the the, the last, uh, last few weeks of the quarter. Sometimes the, the, the CFO or the finance team will say, hey, we're under certain areas. Hey, marketing team, can you go apply some of those dollars to... Uh, to, to whatever digital program uh, so that um, our, our numbers look wholesome for, for the quarter. So I've kind of seen both scenarios. Do marketing people have like a couple of channels, favorite channels they like to throw money at when there is that extra dollar? And we say, Jeff, we really need you to pull through for us here and drum up some demand. I mean, these days it's it's going right into to, to LinkedIn and it's going right into uh, to, to still Google uh, in terms of uh, a search engine marketing. It's, it's easy to spend money there. Um, it's also easy to get lost, meaning that it doesn't mean that you put dollars there that you're going to get the right outcome. So I've experienced before throwing a bunch of money at the end of a quarter into to Google and not getting the return. Mm -hmm. In fact, you got a bunch of, of junk leads coming out of there. So um, uh, really, my advice is if you run into this situation is that you do 
have to plan for it. Even a good campaign on Google will take you, you know, a couple of months to figure out, okay, who are the audiences? Why do we want to double down and spend more money? Do we think we can actually get more leads out of that? Uh, so it, it shouldn't be just a, a rush rush, but those are, are probably kind of where you see most money spent kind of out of the gate. There's definitely a difference between quality and quantity when it comes to these end of the quarter, dump out whatever you got left in the budget. So that resonates. Jeff, I wanted to ask you, what's something about the CMO role that's hard and often misunderstood? Ooh, what's, what's something about the CMO role that uh, is, is misunderstood? I think it's ownership. Like what does a CMO own? Um, you know, what is, is the, the role of, of the marketing team um, as a company grows and matures? Uh, and what are the roles that are needed in order to, to fulfill kind of the demand, but also to service the company? So, for example, uh, a marketing team may start off with, you know, one or two roles, and that's demand gen and product marketing. Uh, then as you start to grow, you start to add capacity in other areas. You're going to need someone to do kind of social media. You're going to need folks to, to build content. Um, you're going to need to have specialists around kind of the marketing operations tech stack. Uh, you might need to have field marketing uh, and events. Uh, then you start to, to add other type of roles uh, that in, involve going into to areas such as uh, how do you do influencer, influencer marketing or how to do growth marketing. So what happens is, is you get a lot of sprawl uh, and you, you oftentimes have uh, folks that don't understand why there's so many roles in marketing. Whereas if you're in software engineering, it's a developer, senior developer, and then you move into to, to, to engineering manager. If you're in finance, oftentimes it's a finance manager, and then you move up to, to kind of some leadership roles. In sales, it's, it's pretty clear cut. Marketing tends to be kind of very, very diverse. Uh, and as you, you build a company, you need that 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 diversity uh, uh, because uh, really marketing is hopefully the strategic engine that is helping fuel growth for the next six to twelve to twenty four months of the company. Uh, so I think that's one of the areas where there's just this misconception um, between um, the CFO and the exec team and even boards around kind of what the marketing team does. The other issue I would say, it comes down into to, to how do you measure marketing? Um, and this is where we talk about pipeline. I think if you just simplify it to pipeline versus, oh, hey, I spent all this money and I got all this, you know, all these leads here. Um, if you just simplify it to pipeline, um, you can either e easily quantify the return of your investment in, in marketing. That's amazing. I like how you were able to lay out what marketing owns because I do feel like sometimes companies will talk about marketing as sitting in this kind of, gray space in the middle and it should firmly be that they own pipeline for the whole company yeah, absolutely absolutely all right jeff uh i'm gonna take you into what we like to call our long ass lightning round roll the theme music producer nancy and with that it's time to rep yo stack sponsored by tropic the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. You're a man who is, through the, through the years, spent a lot of money on marketing software, no doubt. 
today, what are some of your favorite tools within the Marcom stack? I'm going to just call out one tool. So uh, I think it's Figma. Uh, Figma now owned by, by Adobe. Um, what I love about Figma, it started with users. It just started with designers saying this is the hottest stuff that they ever kind of worked on. It's it, it's it was awesome software. Uh, it delighted the the, the develop the development teams. Yeah. They didn't want to use anything else. Uh, and when I first kind of saw Figma used for design, uh, I now see it being used for almost everything. It's it's being used as as your brainstorming tool, as your note taking tool, as it's being used for prototyping. Uh, and it can now even be used to, to build really kick-ass presentations. So why go try to build a slide deck in uh, in Google Slides or in Keynote or in PowerPoint? Uh, you can do a lot of this stuff in, in Figma, uh, and 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 that is really kind of what I think is 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 really important. Is is it comes down from from like users. So it wasn't like a tool that I selected. That's like, hey, we got to use Figma. It came from like the designers and the UX team saying that, hey. We want to use this tool because it's more productive. It's going to make us more productive. We're going to be able to build better quality outputs. Uh, and we're going to be able to build something that's scalable, a framework that's scalable, uh, that can be used as co like a component library uh, to be utilized for the web, for marketing assets, be able to utilize it for you know campaigns as well as presentations. So I, I love Figma. I think it's a, it's a fantastic product. Uh, and, and that's what, what I would talk about. I do think that across the MarTech stack, honestly, there has not been a lot of innovation in the past 10 years. Uh, and I think things are gonna drastically change with generative AI, and there's gonna be a brand new kind of MarTech stack uh, in the next kind of one to two years that emerge. If you ask kind of CMOs and marketers and demand gen leaders, most folks have been using the same tech stack for a long time. Uh, it's been ruled by HubSpot for a while, right? Uh, Sneak was on HubSpot for a while. Salesforce has been around for a while. Of course, these companies are are advancing around adding generative AI capabilities within those tools, which is phenomenal. Um, yeah. But I do think around some of these platforms, I think you need a HubSpot, you need a Salesforce around these platforms. There's a lot of tools that just have not had a lot of innovation. Cool. Jeff, if you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell them? Okay, when you are younger, um, especially early on, and just trying to, to get started and trying to make it, um, I think I think you, you feel the need uh, to kind of be everywhere uh, and to do everything and even try to be the hero. <laughs> so you end up kind of working extremely hard. Um, you're you're working kind of all day, all night long, um, uh, and 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 really uh, as as you try to try to do that, I think you end up burning yourself out. So um, uh, what I would say is that today, um, instead of trying to be everything to everyone, focus on one or two things that that you can do really, really well, go deep um, and, and really become either an expert in that area. Uh, and then once you become an expert in that area, then you go shift to, to, to a new thing. So I, I always believe that you should always be learning, uh, but you have to be, be deep in, in one or two areas. Uh, and then you have to then build kind of enduring and long lasting relationships uh, over sustained periods of time. That's an amazing answer. Jeff, this has been a pleasure. But before we go, where can people find you? And can you give me just an update on what you've been working on these days? Ah, sure thing. So, uh, okay. Uh, people can find me uh, when I'm not working. You can find me on a river, fly fishing. Hopefully I'm, I'm in solitude. 
uh, and I'm catching lots of fish. Uh, uh, but just kidding, after 20, 20 years of being an operator, uh, decided to, to take the plunge and start my own company. I am a co-founder of a new company. We're still in stealth. Uh, and uh, when you, you think about kind of what, what I'm looking to solve is, uh, I do believe that there's generations where new tech emerges and it replaces old tech. This is the age to do it. This is the time to do it um, with all the new kind of modern technologies available to build kind of generative AI and AI. Uh, you can really build a company much more efficiently and different than uh, companies before. Uh, so uh, I am focused on, on launching and building a new company that hopefully will drive value and you'll see value uh, around driving efficiency at the top of funnel uh, and then driving efficiency for sales teams to drive top line revenue. And I have been living uh, a bunch of pain points uh, around the buying and selling journey for years and years around the existing MarTech solution. What we have done is thrown a lot of spaghetti uh, on the wall and like, okay, let's figure out how to do things and we'll just throw spaghetti, we'll see if it works. Uh, but I think there's an opportunity to really kind of codify things with, with a new platform, with a new technology, with new products. Uh, so I won't kind of divulge what that answer is, but for a CFO, I will say that I do believe that we can consolidate three to five plus tools, uh, drive improvement in pipeline and conversion rates, uh, and then make that, that sales org much more efficient from, from ground up. So I'll leave it with that. Jeff, once you launch, man, we're going to have you back on and we'll get you some CFOs as customers. Thanks, man. Uh, Awesome. Great talking, CJ. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.